If you went here a couple of weeks ago, uh, last week and we're on church camp, uh, the week before that I said we were, we were uh, sort of pressing pause uh, on our series in the Sermon on the Mount to look through Revelation chapters 1 to 3. Uh, the bulk of that, chapters 2 and 3, is going to be uh, John's, uh, well, really Christ's letters to uh, seven churches. Uh, but this vision and what we looked at a couple of weeks ago really sets up what Christ is going to say to these seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Uh, so please uh, pray with me. And then we'll look at this passage. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, we know uh, our Lord Jesus said that uh, when uh, his spirit came, uh, the spirit would bring, uh, would glorify him. I uh, would open our eyes to see how great, how magnificent, how brilliant, uh, how glorious he is, who he is and what he's done. Uh, so we pray this day, Father, that you would pour out your spirit uh, and that you would do this work of capturing our hearts and minds afresh with the glory of our Lord Jesus. Uh, please uh, help me to be faithful and clear. Help us uh, all to be attentive uh, and give us uh, the humility we need to hear and trust and obey, uh, to delight in your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so uh, one of the things I really liked to do growing up uh, was puzzles. I don't know if anyone does puzzles. Does anyone do puzzles anymore? Maybe on, on your phone or iPad or something. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, I really like doing puzzles. Uh, but one thing I hated about doing puzzles uh, was uh, when you kind of had worked really hard for hours and hours on end, and then you discovered there was a missing piece. Uh, and you're searching for the missing piece, you just can't find this missing piece. Uh, and I reckon that that's how lots of us feel about our lives, isn't it? We feel like our life is one uh, big puzzle, uh, but there's just that one piece missing. Uh, we're constantly searching for that person, uh, perhaps that, that experience, that thing, uh, that, 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 that little something that will give us that little bit extra, that will just complete the picture, that will give us that bit extra meaning or purpose or, or satisfaction in life. Right? We're, we're searching for this piece, uh, but we never find it. And in part, uh, we don't find it, uh, because we don't really know what we're looking for. But what is this missing piece that all of us are searching for? I, I want to say today, it's what the Bible calls glory. Where we're searching for glory. We crave glory. We long for it. And now most of you don't even know what I mean when I say glory. Uh, but if you go onto thesaurus.com, don't do that now because you need to listen to what I'm saying. But if you go onto thesaurus.com, look up the synonyms for glory, uh, you'll see that some of them are beauty or splendor or, or brilliance. And if someone or something has those qualities, they display those qualities, uh, they receive praise and honour and approval, they're admired by others, they, they have renown, they, they make a name for themselves. That's what we crave. That's what all of us want. We want glory. And we crave it because at one point all of us had it. Uh, if you read uh, later on Psalm, uh, Psalm 8, Psalm 8, verse 5, David says this. He says, you, have, you, that is God, have made humanity just a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. So every single one of us uh, was made as a glorious being. Uh, but we receive that glory by being in relationship with our glorious God. It's kind of a derivative glory. And of course, in our sin, all of us reject that glory. We, we kind of forfeit it. Instead of finding glory in our relationship with God, we reject God to try and find our own glory. 
like the people of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, we're going to make a, we're going to make a name for ourselves, not a, not a name for God. We're going to live for our glory, not for God's glory. We're going to find someone or something uh, in this world uh, that will give us that, that deep sense of status, of significance, of approval. And now perhaps some of you think I'm reading too much into it, like you, you, like you don't see any of this in your life. But let me ask, do you ever wish that uh, you didn't care as much what other people think of you? Have you ever wished that? Do you ever have a kind of controlling desire for people's respect or approval or, or admiration? Or on the flip side, do you ever feel uh, almost paralysed or, or at least a little bit stuck at the thought of being uh, rejected or excluded or, or just that oh, you might go through your life and do what you do and no one will even notice you? And do you feel no one really appreciates what you do? Like you work really hard and, and no, one, no one even gives me the slight and they don't pay me any attention. Why can't the spotlight be on me for once? And do you ever find yourself fishing for compliments? Like you're in the conversation and you're always playing down your capabilities in the hope that someone will pump you up. You know, I'm not that good at that. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, you know. Or maybe you're someone who excuses or justifies or kind of tries to, to shift blame for mistakes that you've made because you just can't stand the thought of failing in front of someone else. If you notice any of that in you, like, oh, I definitely notice it in me, right? but if you notice it in your life, uh, you're noticing the dark side of your craving for glory. And this is how this works, right? You're so desperate to be significant, to be approved of, uh, to be noticed by someone else, uh, that you end up being enslaved to what other people think of you. You're, you're, you're controlled uh, by fear of other people. Uh, so what do we do? How, how do we deal with this craving for glory? How do we experience any kind of freedom, I think, from what all of us experience, this fear of other people? Well, what I want you to get today is that those things will only happen uh, if your heart is captured by Christ's glory. That's, that's what liberates us. That's what gives us this freedom. That's what satisfies our deep cravings because all of us were created to find our glory in worshipping Christ as our glorious King. That's what we were created for. That's what will satisfy us. That's what will liberate us from fear of other people. So that's where we're headed today. We're looking at John's glorious vision of Christ. Uh, we're going to see the recipient, the reception for us. I know it's very neat. Uh, the, the record and the reaction to the vision. So the first star. Uh, let's look at the recipient of the vision. Uh, it's there in verse 9. Uh, John says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, uh, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John John's he's very humble. He doesn't refer himself refer to himself as an apostle, right? That that was his right, that that was his authoritative title. No, he, he's just John. Simply John. He's John, who's right there with his brothers and sisters in the churches of Asia, uh, who are suffering for their faith. Right? He's their brother and companion in suffering. And it's clear that he's suffering, right? He's locked up on the island of Patmos, right? This isn't some cushy jail that uh, lots of uh, people go to these days. It's like a, kind of an ancient Alcatraz, 
Like that's what the island of Patmos was. And John says he's locked up because he wasn't willing to budge on his convictions about the word of God. He wasn't willing to stop testifying, to stop speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So what did the Romans do? They, they locked him up. They wanted to silence John. And notice what God does. He gives John uh, possibly the greatest revelation of Jesus Christ ever, which we're reading today. Isn't that neat? Right? Paul says in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, uh, God's word, he might be chained up, but God's word cannot be chained. Right? John's another example of that. A glorious thing. This is John, the recipient of the vision. A second, the reception of the vision. In verse 10, have a look at verse 10. John says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write down on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I have three things in, in these verses. And the first thing I want you to notice is the manner in which John received the vision. Right? He says he was in the spirit. Uh, now, maybe uh, some of you here, you're, you're Presbyterian through and through. Uh, you're a bit nervous about this idea of being in the spirit. Like, sounds a little bit Pentecostal. Like, what's going on uh, with John here? Uh, but the, the, the point is uh, that even though the Romans can cut John off from other Christians, they can't cut him off from Christ. Because by the power of Christ's spirit, John is intimately connected with Christ. He's in deep communion with Christ. He's in the spirit. So much so that God's spirit kind of lifts him up. God's spirit carries him away and reveals this vision to him. And this language of of being in the spirit reminds us of John's authority. Because it it puts him in the same category as all the Old Testament prophets, or at least uh, many of them. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 12, Ezekiel 3, verse 12 says, Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a loud rumbling sound. He's he's caught up in the Spirit, Ezekiel. In verse 14, he says, The Spirit then lifted me up and took me away. So this language of being caught up in the Spirit tells us that John's words in this passage Uh, They're not merely human words. Like As we look at this passage today, it's not like flicking on Oprah and and we're getting some pearls of wisdom from the latest pop psychologist. No, no, no. These aren't human words. They're not a collection of tips. They're not just good advice. They're the very words of God given by the Spirit of God to the people of God, you see. So we need to recognize that these words uh, come with authority. That's, that's how they were given, the manner in which John received the vision. Uh, the, The second thing I want you to notice is the moment. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Uh, The Lord's Day is Sunday. It's today. The day uh, that became the first day of the week for Christians. The day on which our Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, So you can picture John's there. He's in his cell on the island of Patmos. Uh, He's all by himself, but it's the Lord's Day. So he's worshipping God. And by the power of his spirit, Christ gives him this glorious vision. So I've been praying this week, I've been praying today, that God would do that for us. On this Lord's Day, it's Sunday, right? And here we are, gathered as God's people. I pray that God would open our eyes by the power of his spirit to see the full glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the first time 
uh, for the hundredth time. It's the Lord's day. Uh, third thing, notice uh, the mediator of the vision, the manner, uh, the moment, the mediator of the vision. Who is it that gives the vision? Mediates it. Verse 11, John uh, hears a great voice from behind him uh, and he says it's like a trumpet. It's like a trumpet. Why, why, why say that? Because throughout the Old Testament, when God appears to his people, uh, his voice often comes, uh, along with his voice, comes trumpets. Uh, for example, in uh, Exodus chapter 19, God appears to Israel at Mount Sinai. Uh, and in verse 16, uh, we read, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. I, I play trumpet. I, I feel it's appropriate that the trumpet's associated with divine things. Uh, it's a, a beautiful instrument. Anyway, a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. God was appearing to them. They're about to meet with him. So, so John knows this. John knows his Old Testament. He hears this great voice. It's like a trumpet. And he's preparing to meet with God. And then in verses 12 and 14... He turns around to see who spoke to him, and he sees one like the Son of Man. Right? He, he doesn't see God as such. He sees Christ. It's a massive claim. To hear Christ's voice is to hear God's voice. This is all throughout John's Gospel, isn't it? To see Christ's glory is to see God's glory. Now that's the, the, the reception of the vision in those verses. What, what about the record? This is really the guts of the passage, verses 12 to 16. Uh, in verse 12, have a look at verse 12. John says, uh, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Uh, what, what, what are these lampstands? Well, uh, if you, I don't know if you noticed when uh, uh, Kirsty read the passage, but uh, Jesus actually tells us down in verse 20. If you've got the passage there, have a look at verse 20. Jesus says that the seven lampstands are the, the seven churches. So that these seven lampstands symbolize the, the seven churches in the province of Asia. They're, they're listed there in verse 11. So, so why use lampstands uh, to symbolize churches? That's a reasonable question. Why not something else? Well, we've got to look actually back in the Old Testament at Zechariah chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, it would be actually really great in general at church, but particularly as we look at Revelation, because there's all sorts of Old Testament references. If you bring a Bible on your phone, hard copy, Zechariah chapter 4, if you don't know where Zechariah is, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, and Zechariah is just before that. Right, so if you can flick back, find Zechariah chapter 4, uh, and as you're finding the passage, I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory. Right? Uh, some of you might know that uh, in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, uh, in the temple, uh, that these were the special places where God's glory dwelt in a, in a special way. Right? In, in those places, uh, there, God said there ought to be a lampstand in the Holy of Holies. Right? It looked a bit like this. If we can pop up the, um, the picture, there it is. There's a lampstand, so you can see it's one. It's kind of a single lampstand with, with seven candles, they would have been. You don't know, gas or whatever else going on there. So uh, seven candles that the priest had to maintain. So I'll just leave that up for a second. Uh, that, that's the context. Now let's look at uh, Zechariah chapter 4. Oh, a little bit more context, actually. Uh, what happened in the Old Testament uh, was that uh, this lampstand symbolized, really, Israel's mission. 
Right? Israel we were supposed to shine God's glory to the nations, to, to the whole world. Uh, but of course, the, the story of the Old Testament, Israel failed in that mission. They failed so dismally that God uh, uh, raised up the Babylonians uh, to come and destroy the temple, to destroy Jerusalem, and they took everything in the temple, including this lampstand, into Babylon. Now that's the context for Zechariah chapter 4. So if you look at Zechariah chapter 4, in verse 2, uh, an angel says to Zechariah, what do you see? And Zechariah says, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Like he's describing something a bit like this. And then if you look down in verses 8 to 10, I'm not going to read those verses, uh, but you'll see that the God is telling uh, Zechariah that the temple and in fact all Israel uh, is going to be rebuilt. Right? Israel's witness, their, their testimony to the nations, uh, it will be restored. And verse 6, just before that, uh, is Zechariah basically saying, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that's possible. Like, how, how's this going to happen? And so God says, uh, it will happen, but it will only happen by the power of his spirit. Not by might, uh, not by strength, but by the power of his spirit. So, so what does this tell us? If you flick back to, to Revelation chapter 1, what, what does this tell us about John's vision in Revelation 1, churches as lampstands? Uh, three things. First, it tells us uh, that the church is the ultimate fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 4. The, the Christian church. Right, so the church, uh, as the church, we've got the same mission as Israel. We're a lampstand. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to shine the light of God's glory into our world. Right, Jesus says, "You are the light of the world." We're a lampstand. A second, like Israel, uh, the church, as Don's writing to, we today might wonder if we're going to be able to fulfil this mission. My people in Zechariah's day were mocking the people of God. They were pressuring them. They were persecuting them. Uh, that could be happening today. It was happening in John's day. Uh, so we have to remember God's words to Zechariah. How will we do this? Not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God we will do this. Zechariah 4 verse 6. Uh, but the third thing is really unlike Israel. Because the, the church, uh, the Christian church across the globe... It's not one single lampstand, is it? Not like Israel is one nation shining out. The Christian church is not one single lampstand. Notice that each of these seven local churches in separate separate cities are each a lampstand. So that applies to us. We, Darabin Presbyterian Church, are a temple of the Holy Spirit, a, a place where the very glory of God dwells and shines out into the world, you see. We're a lampstand. To, to shine the light of God's glory in this world. Just as those seven churches uh, were lampstands. So that, that's kind of why this vision has these churches as lampstands. Uh, look at verse 13. Uh, among the lampstands, uh, John sees one like a son of man. Uh, the, the background to that phrase and to this whole vision and really to, to much of Revelation uh, is found in the book of Daniel. If you want to understand Revelation, you really do have to understand Daniel. So once again, if you've got a Bible, I want you to flick back to the book of Daniel. If you can't find it, look for Ezekiel, like it's a really big book in the Old Testament. And Daniel is just after Ezekiel. So flick back. Flick. I'm not doing much flicking. Hopefully there's lots of scrolling on phones for Daniel. Oh, 
I, in part, I want you to have the passage in front of you so that you can actually see for yourself whether, hey, is what Aaron's saying actually, like, legit? Like, so I want you to actually look at the passage and, and test what I'm saying. So if you get to Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel 7, verse 13. Uh, Daniel says this. Uh, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was who? One like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Uh, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Right? This is Daniel's vision of, of both God, right, the, the Ancient of Days, and also the one like the Son of Man. Right, the, the, this one who is going to rule over, goes, over God's global kingdom, over God's eternal kingdom. His kingdom will never be destroyed, we're told. And keep that chapter open. Look at verse 9. Daniel describes his vision of God even more. As I looked, he says, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. Right? It's, a, it's a spectacular vision of God. Now, if you've got that open, flick over to Daniel chapter 10. Just a few couple of pages over. Daniel 10. Uh, Daniel sees the... the oh, there's some debate about this, but I, I think he, he sees the Son of Man again here in Daniel 10. Uh, in verse 5, he says, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen... Uh, with a belt of fine gold from upas around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs are like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Right, so all that's the background. Right? If you come back to Revelation chapter 1, uh, you'll see that the John's vision of Christ has lots of similarities, not just to Daniel's vision of, of the Son of Man, but to his vision of God. Right? Another claim that Christ is God. Well, let's look at this vision. In Revelation chapter 1, look at verse 13. John says that Christ is dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Right? It's the Son of Man in Daniel 10. We just read that. It also sounds like Exodus chapter 28, where God describes the clothes that Israel's priests should wear. So in Exodus 28 to 42, make linen undergarments as a covering for the body, reaching from the waist to the thigh. You can also look in Chronicle, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, right? So the point is that Christ is walking among his lampstands. Remember that that's in the temple. It's temple imagery. And he's dressed as a priest. He's wearing the clothes of a priest. And that's very appropriate because part of the priest's work in the Old Testament was to tend to the lampstand. What did the priests have to do? They had to trim the lampstand. They had to remove the old wicks. They had to replace oil. They had to relight candles. They had to make sure they were fit to shine light, essentially. Likewise, Christ in Revelation 2 and 3 is about to tend to his church. That's what he's going to do. Sometimes he'll encourage his church, uh, but most of the time uh, he's going to correct and rebuke and purify his church. He's going to trim it. He's going to make sure they're fit to shine the light of his glory in the world. That's what he's about to do as the priest uh, among his people. 
Uh, In verse 14, look there, John says, uh, the hair on Christ's head was white like wool, as white as snow. That's what God's hair was like in Daniel 7. And this picture of of white hair uh, is a picture of wisdom, Christ's infinite wisdom. Because typically, you get wiser as you get older. And sometimes when that happens, your hair gets white. Right? You get the connections. So the point is, the encouragement is that in his infinite wisdom, Christ knows what's best for us. He knows what's best for his people. Uh, Even if it's persecution or suffering. That's the context here. Christ's eyes. We've had his hair. uh, Now his eyes. His eyes, John says, are like blazing fire. That's Christ's purity, isn't it? His absolute holiness. And it's his eyes, right? Because the point is that Christ can see all sin. Even the sin that we think we're hiding from other people. Right? Christ can see all sin. Therefore, he will judge all sin. He'll judge all sin amongst his people, purifying them. And he'll judge all sin in his world. His eyes are like blazing fire. He doesn't miss a thing. At verse 15, John sees uh, his feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. That's, that's burnished bronze. Once again, it's, it's Daniel 10, the son of man. And once again, throughout the Old Testament, bronze uh, is associated with judgment. God's judgment. So, so in the Old Testament, uh, Israel had to offer all their sacrifices on a bronze altar. Right? But those animals were bearing the judgment of God on Israel's sin. So often, bronze is associated with judgment. Christ is appearing here to judge and purify his people. That's what he's about to do in chapters 2 and 3. Hair, eyes, feet, voice. John describes Christ's voice as being like the sound of rushing waters. I've not really been to a really big waterfall. Like, I don't know if people have been to Victoria Falls or Niagara Falls... But I imagine if you're right near those waterfalls, uh, you can't hear much else. Like they drown out pretty much everything else. And that's the point here. Christ's voice drowns out, or at least it should drown out every other voice. Particularly for the Christian who's suffering. Right? Christ's voice should be the loudest voice. It should be, uh, his voice should be the opinion that matters most. The verdict that matters most. The, the loudest voice. Uh, fifth, in, in verse 16, John sees that uh, Christ's hand, in his right hand, he's holding seven stars. And this was also down in verse 20. Uh, these seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Uh, so there's a fair bit of debate. Who, who are these angels? Uh, there's really two options. They're either actual angels, like, like heavenly beings, or they're uh, pastors, because the word angel simply means a messenger of God. And, and pastors, uh, at least hopefully good ones, uh, are bringing God's message to God's people. They're messengers of God. I, I think it's probably pastors, not because I don't believe uh, actual supernatural angels exist, uh, but because the letters in chapters 2 and 3, all of them are addressed to the angels of the churches. So I think it makes most sense that these letters are given to the pastors, uh, the angels, the messengers of God, who then read them to their church. But whichever way you you go with that, the the point's still the same, isn't it? The right hand is the hand of of blessing, of favour, 
of protection. So the point is that the Christ uh, is holding his church. His, uh, his church is absolutely secure. They're blessed. They live under his favor. Uh, and he's doing that through his representatives, his pastors, his angels, that protect and bless his people. Uh, sixth, John sees that coming out of Christ's mouth is a sharp, double-edged sword. What another image of judgment, a terrifying image, really. Uh, in Revelation 19, this sword symbolizes Christ's judgment on the enemies of the church, right? People who are, who are persecuting his people. Uh, but here, right in the context of chapters 2 and 3, uh, Christ is preparing to judge not his enemies, but his church. That's confronting. Right? It's not a judgment of punishment. Well, let me clarify, be really clear. It's not a judgment of punishment. We know that Christ bore the punishment for all our sins on the cross. But it is a judgment of purification. Christ is always at work sifting and refining and purifying his people. He's tending his lampstands, you see. He sees all sin. He wants us to be more devoted to him, to be more passionate about him and his cause in the world. So he purifies us. Finally, John sees that Christ's face is like the sun shining in all its brilliance. The word brilliance there is a word dunamis. I don't share that because to flaunt Greek. But just to say that it's where we get the word dynamite from. Right? Dunamis, dynamite. That gives you an idea of what John's talking about. He's saying if you, as he saw Christ, as he really was, he saw the brilliance of his glory. It was, it was literally explosive. It was dynamite. It kind of blew his mind apart. That's what happens if you see Christ in all his glory. It'll blow your mind. It'll change your life forever. And that's what happened for John. You see that there in his reaction to this vision. In verse 17, he says, When I saw Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead. Right? It, just blew me, it blew me apart, this vision. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. Don't, don't miss that, right? Remember the right hand? Right? The, the, the same hand with which Christ holds his entire church across the world is the same hand with which he reaches out and he can touch you, to minister to you, to comfort you. Uh, The same voice with which he can roar like a mighty waterfall is the same voice with which he can comfort you when you're suffering, when you're afraid, when when you're struggling. That's what John experiences, right? And, and, and so the question is, like, it is pretty terrifying, isn't it? Like, he sees this vision, Christ's got a massive, massive sword coming out of his mouth, explosive face, like, and, and Jesus says, oh, don't be afraid. What do you mean, don't be afraid? What do you mean, don't? Why should he not be afraid? Well, because he knows Christ, and Christ knows him, and Christ has immense power. Right? This is where I want to finish with these few points. Uh, Christ has power over time. Over all of human history, I am the first and the last, Christ says. He's existed and ruled this world from before the beginning of time until the end of time, and he'll rule it through all eternity. He's got absolute power over time. All of human history is in the palm of his hand. 
So don't be afraid. You know him and he knows you. He's got power over life. He's the living one. But if you, you should maybe read John's gospel alongside Revelation, right? This is all through his gospel. Jesus is the word of God that creates and sustains life. He's the living water. He's the living bread. He's the one who came to offer what? To offer abundant life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one that, that if anyone who believes in him will live even though they die. He's the living one. He has life in himself to give. A third, he has power over sin. I was dead, he says, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. Uh, in Revelation 5, John has another vision of Christ. Right, this time he sees him as the Lamb of God who has been slain for our sins. Right, he was dead, but now he's alive. Right? John sees him. He's seated on, his, on a throne. He lives. He reigns. He rules. What does that mean? It means we can be assured that his death has power to deal with our sin. He has power over sin. And lastly, John shouldn't be afraid because he knows the one who has power over death. I hold the keys of uh, death and Hades, Christ said. I came home earlier today uh, with my keys and I looked uh, for my house key, which is right there. And what did I do with it? I used it to unlock a door, right? And then I left later on uh, through the back door this time and I found the back door key and I used it to unlock, uh, to, to lock the door. Right? That's, what, that's what keys do, isn't it? That they uh, lock and unlock doors. And so what Christ is saying here uh, is that as the final judge, he has the power to lock certain doors, he can lock the door of both death and Hades, of physical and spiritual death. It's locked. You couldn't possibly go through. But he's also got the power to unlock certain doors, the door of physical and spiritual life. That's where Revelation's headed. A new heavens, a new earth, where God will dwell with his people. His power over death and Hades. There it is. John sees the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees him in all his glory. It blows his mind. And as I read this passage, I wonder if that's how you see Christ. I suspect many of us still see Christ as he was in our children's Bible. You know, he's maybe carrying a lamb around his shoulders. Humble carpenter, loving teacher, rejected servant. And those things are true. They're very true about Christ. But it's not what he looks like now. Christ is, is risen and ascended. He's glorified. He lives. He reigns. He rules as our glorious king. That's how we should see him. That's how we should relate to him. Not chummy chummy, right? We should fall on our knees. We should worship him. We should be in awe of him as John does here. Uh, it reminds me of a scene in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I do like The Lord of the Rings. Uh, most of you know that The Lord of the Rings is set in Middle Earth. Uh, it's a land uh, that is threatened by horrible evil powers, much like the first century. Uh, and the mission to destroy those powers is entrusted to some hobbits. But if you know the story, the hobbits are helped along their way by a, na a man named Strider. And the hobbits um, come across Strider, in, I think it's in the inn, in Bree, isn't it? They meet him, he, he, to them he's just a humble and homeless and friendless man. Who is this guy? 
But in the climactic battle, when the evil, when evil is finally defeated, when light finally engulfs darkness altogether, Strider's glory is revealed. This is what Tolkien says. He says, uh, when Aragorn, though that's Strider, wait, when Aragorn arose, all that beheld him gazed in silence. For it seemed to them that he was revealed to them now for the very first time. Tall as the sea kings of old, he stood above all that were near. Ancient of days. Right? Notice that. Tolkien's a Christian. Ancient of days. He seemed, and yet in the flower of manhood, and wisdom sat upon his brow, and strength and healing were in his hands, and a light was about him. And then Faramir cried out, Behold our glorious king. All of us need that kind of experience today. We need to behold our glorious King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to see the fullness of His glory. Uh, not just, like, we need it to kind of capture our hearts, to, to grip our hearts, so that we actually say, Behold our glorious King. That, that's what we were created for. And that's what you crave. And you long for status, for honour, for significance. You long for someone to notice you. You search for that thing anywhere and everywhere in this world, but you never find it because you need Christ. Not the glory of a promotion or of having children or finding a husband or wife or being a leader in your field. You need the glory of Christ. That's what you need. You need the King of Kings, the Ancient of Days, the first and the last, the one who one day will defeat all, all evil, not just in some fantasy world, but in this world. He's the one that Strider points to, you see. So like John, we need to fall on our knees and worship Christ. We need to fear him, be in awe of him, revere him. Because it's only then, with Christ rightly sitting on the th- kind of as if he's kind of sitting on the throne of our hearts, uh, that we'll find that missing piece, that the glory that we've always craved. And in finding that, you'll be liberated from fear of other people. I'm experiencing like it's not, not instantly, right? But over time, this is happening for me. I just do not care as much what other people think of me. That is incredibly liberating. It actually sets me free, like. If you live for your own glory apart from Christ, you will use people to pump yourself up. You'll never be able to truly love and serve people because you need them to build up your glory. So everyone, every situation, every person is an opportunity to provide glory for you. But if you're satisfied with the glory of Christ, you're actually liberated to truly love and serve people. So I found this incredibly liberating in my life. When you know that the one who really matters, the one who's got power over all of history, time, sin, life and death, holds you in the palm of your hand. He loves you. He he laid down his life for you. When you know him and he knows you, when you behold your glorified king, you'll not only be satisfied, but you'll be liberated uh, from fear of man. Let me pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this glorious vision of our Lord Jesus. And I pray this day that your spirit would do uh, his work. Opening our eyes to see the glory of our Lord Jesus. As we've heard your word preached, as we share uh, in the Lord's Supper, as we sing songs about the glory of our Lord Jesus, please minister to us, open our hearts and our minds, our eyes to the glory of our Lord Jesus afresh. Uh, For his glory we pray.
Amen.